0: I wonder, do we have any kids in here today? Ah, let's see. I think I need the kids to stand up for a second so I can see you. Ah, all right. We got a few of them in here. Church, do we love our kids? You know, I've, I've been thinking about you. And I'm wondering if you're already sick of your Christmas gifts. <laughs> maybe, don't, don't say that you are, but maybe. So I have a gift for you today, kids, just for you. The, the older ones in here don't get this gift. The gift to you is that you don't have to listen to me today. <laughs> Eric, out the side, my friend. <laughs> Do you know that you get to go to children's church today? Are we excited about that? Today, you stand up, kids, because you're going to go in just a second. Today is Epiphany Sunday. Now that is a fancy word, huh? Epiphany. It means light. But do you know that, that epiphany is a fancy way of saying that I learned something, I had an idea? I had an epiphany. And I'm wondering if you might have an epiphany today, an idea, learn something if you go and pay attention in your class. Do you think you could commit to do that today? All right. Awesome. God, I pray for our little ones today that are about to go and to learn about King David. Oh, would you help them to see the light? Would you bless them today? We love our children and we know you love them. And so would you be with them, God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, you are free to go to the back. Parents, if you hadn't yet checked them in, please go with Pastor Emily uh, so that you can make sure you do that. But the rest of you have to stay with me. Sorry about that. It's a tough thing growing up, isn't it? Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter two. I told you that I'm following the lectionary passages, and if you get the e-news from the church, then you know that there was a preaching path that was given for you to follow along for this entire month of January. The lectionary each and every week provides four texts for us. Uh, You've heard all of them, or will have heard all of them, once I read the gospel today. So our psalm was assigned today that we've heard, our, well, I guess we didn't hear a psalm this morning. Uh, the Isaiah passage was used instead, uh, and then we heard the Ephesian passage and then the gospel passage I'll read in a second. It's on a three-year cycle, in case you didn't know this. So year A, year B, year C, we're in year A in the year 2023, and so every time that we come to year A in the lectionary cycle, we always follow the gospel of Matthew. So this is the gospel that we're going to mostly be with this month. And hopefully that's just helpful for you as you think about these texts and think about why did, why did they put these texts together? Uh, what do they mean you can wrestle with it before you even show up on Sunday because you already have them with you? But our text comes from Matthew 2, starting with verse 1, I'll be reading through uh, verse 12. And I would ask that if you are able to stand with me in honor of reading the gospel this morning, be reading out of the NIV translation. The text says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. God, would you open our hearts right now? Open our minds so that we can hear your words this morning, what it is that you want to speak to each of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I think from the start, we should make some observations about this passage. It's probably a familiar passage to you. Did you notice that there are no names given to the Magi? We don't know who these men were. We don't actually even know their place of origin, do do we? Or is it places of origin? Were these men that, that gathered at one central spot and came in search of this new king of the Jews together? Or was it that they converged at some point? Did they have the same starting spot? We don't know. There's no real description that's given of the Magi. And did you notice that the text doesn't actually tell us how many there were? three, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't say that, actually. We think three because of the number of gifts, of course. There are three gifts that are given, and so that makes sense that there would be three wise men that come to bring those gifts. But did you know that early Christians thought that there were 12 wise men? Twelve. Twelve. Twelve is a significant number in Scripture. It it reminds us of the twelve tribes of Israel, and so maybe the early church not having a specific number that was given thought that this would be a meaningful number to place on the wise. Maybe that's why the early church kind of had this idea of twelve wise men coming, which I suppose would mean that maybe there were four wise men that brought gold, four that brought frankincense, four that brought uh, myrrh, or who knows, right? We don't really know. Somewhere along the line, though, Christian tradition has changed a little bit because we don't think about 12 very much. We think about three, don't we? And Christian tradition has given us actually some details of these three that go beyond what the text tells us. Did you know that they have names? Have we heard this before? Anybody? I don't see any heads nodding. Okay, we got one that's heard the names before. Listen up, I'm going to give you their names. Melchior. Now that's a good name, isn't it? Melchior. And it's not just a name, but Christian tradition has told us descriptions as well. Did you know that Melchior is considered to be old, gray-haired, and a long beard? Funny details that were given, right? He's the one that brings gold to the Christ child. And he's said to be the king of Persia. Caspar or Gaspar, we see both versions of this name, is, he's considered to be young. So young that he doesn't yet have a beard. And he has a reddish complexion, and he's the one that brings frankincense to Jesus. And he's said to be the king of India. And then the last one is Balthazar. He was black, and he had a short beard. And he was the one that brings myrrh, and he's said to be the king of Arabia. One can see the significance of these details, I think. Here you have in these three men the, the full cycle of the adult life, right? You have the young man, you have the middle-aged man, and you have the elder. And not just age is represented there, but we also have a multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, uh, representation as well. If you think about these three areas, Persia, and India, and Arabia, you're talking about much of the known world in this day. And so I think as I I wrestle with this Christian tradition that's been passed down to us, that's trying to fill in the missing pieces of the text that I've read to you, I can't help but think of that Revelation passage. Where all the tribes and all the nations and all the tongues are around the throne of Jesus proclaiming him as Lord, right? And here we're getting a foretaste of that. And so maybe this is why uh, Christians through the ages have wanted to add some details to this. There's symbolism in the gifts themselves, of course. Maybe you've heard this before. Gold is often seen as kingly. And in some places, we, we understand it to be related to divinity, and so we think of this one that has come, and, come to us that is both God and man, king of kings and lord of lords. Oh, gold is, is very symbolic here. Frankincense was used by the priests. Did you know that? Incense that was burned. It was used in priestly ways, and so we think of this one who is not just king of kings and lord of lords, but he's also our high priest, or, or is it that he's our sacrifice, And then we think of myrrh. Myrrh was used in burial practices, anointing of the body. And of course, we know the end of this story. We're at the birth right now, but we know that the cross is coming. We know that the tomb is coming. And so here's this symbolism of death, of suffering. Oh, there's interesting power and insight in the meaning of these gifts. And then there's these titles, Matthew calls them magi, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but Christian tradition has called them kings, kings of Persia, kings of India, kings of Arabia. And if you were paying attention to the Isaiah 60 passage that was read today by Eli, then you heard that the kings are going to have the light come into their lives. They're going to come to the Lord, all the kings of the nation are going to have the light dawn in them. And so we have a foretaste of this in the three wise men, or however however many there are. We have a foretaste of this. We have a a fulfilling or a a starting to fill full this uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60. So I don't think it's all that hard to see why our ancestors of faith have tried to fill in the missing pieces that we don't have in the text that I read this morning. They've done a lot of, I think, intentional thought to it. There's meaning to it. It's Christian tradition. So I think it's probably okay for us to think about it, to wrestle with it, to even learn from it. As long as we remember it's not how the scriptures record it. Right? We can be open to it, we can learn from it, we can think about these traditions, but we do need to come back to the text and ask, what is it that the text is saying to us? And of course, that's what the preacher is intended to do each and every week, isn't It's to open up the text and not necessarily tell you how to live your life based on Christian tradition, although that helps to influence us, but it is to call you to go back to the text. So today, we're going to go to the text and we're going to set aside All of the Christian traditions that give us the name and the place and descriptions and the symbolism, because that actually isn't recorded in Matthew's gospel. And friends, you and I have to put aside our family traditions. Because if you're like me, who's at the manger scene when you set out your little nativity set? The wise men, right? And there's always three of them. Does anybody have any more than three wise men? No, it's three, right? (laughs) Because Matthew should have put it in there. Uh, Three. It's three. It's always three. And we always, I mean, I've grown up in the church. I know this. When we do our, our Christmas plays, the wise men are always a part of it, right? They're always there with the shepherds. They're always there. They're in our home nativity sets. And I get it. And it's fine. It's not wrong. It's okay. But actually, they come later. They don't come at the moment that the shepherds come. And so we kind of have to set some of that away or aside that we think we know about this and just try to listen to the text this morning. And the text says this, that they're actually not called wise men, are they? They're called magi. It's magoi in Greek. Magoi is a Greek word that is often translated as magician or sorcerer in the scriptures. And if you know anything about the Bible, when, it, when we think about magicians or sorcery, we know that the Bible doesn't look on this kindly, does it? And it's not because magicians in the ancient world are like what we call magicians today, which are illusionists, right? That's not exactly what's going on in the, in the biblical time. They're actually participants of pagan practices and religions. This is a religious kind of activity, Magicians and sorcerers are in some ways connected to what we would consider as priests today, but they do things a little differently. And the Bible, of course, takes a negative view of this because they're in competition to Judaism in the Old Testament, Christianity in the New Testament. But that means that they're outsiders, they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. So already you and I have to be scratching our heads a little bit. We're only in the second chapter of Matthew's gospel. We're not at the end of it. We're only at the second chapter, and already we have this interesting thing happening. What is God doing here? But magi can also be translated as astronomer, one who studies the stars, Now, astronomy in the ancient world was a little bit of a combination of what we think of as as astronomy as well as astrology. Astronomy is studying the patterns of the stars. Astrology is trying to discern is there some sort of hidden message because of the pattern of the stars, right? In the ancient world, it was very common to think about the stars as telling us what the future was going to hold, or what our future destinies might be. So you would go to an ast- one of these astronomer, astrologists uh, magi, you would go to them, and you would ask, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for our, our nation, right? Uh, because there was belief that these wise men could read the stars, The fact that the text tells us that it is a star that brings these magi to Jerusalem suggests that maybe these ones that come are more stargazers than they are magicians. Some scholars have wrestled with this, and they, they have noticed that there's a similarity between what the, the, Matthew is describing as the magi and those who are um, called Zoroastrian priests. Now, Zoroastrianism is a religion that is alive today, but it is a dying religion, literally dying out. There are not many practitioners of Zoroastrianism anymore. But a curious thing has happened. When I went to university in the mid-90s, Nazarene School in Idaho, of all places, I studied alongside a young woman who was a Zoroastrian, How in the world did a Zoroastrian get to Nampa, Idaho, of all places, to study at a Christian university? I have no idea. And part of the reason I have no idea is because I was young and dumb, frankly. I saw her as an outsider, somebody that I shouldn't trust, somebody that, why is she here? So I didn't ask her the simple question, how did you come to be in Nampa, Idaho, studying at this university? I could have learned so much. And today I regret this because it's interesting to me. And I think, well, maybe if God can bring a Zoroastrian to a Christian university in the 21st century, or the end of the 20th century, then... Maybe he could do this in the ancient text as well, ancient time as well. Or maybe if he did it in the ancient time, then I shouldn't be surprised that he did it in the current time. In other words, God is doing something interesting here, isn't he? And I wish as a young man I had been paying better attention to that, thinking that, oh, this might be God moving in an amazing way because he's already done this in the past. I missed out on that opportunity. I came across a a totally different story, though. In the 1920s, a British scholar named E.F.F. Bishop came across a Bedouin tribe in Jordan. Okay, so 1920, came across a Bedouin tribe in Jordan. In meeting this tribe, he learned their name. In Arabic, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, it's Al-Kakabani. Kakab means planet or star in Arabic. And so the name of this Bedouin tribe means the people that follow the planet or the stars, okay? And so Bishop asked the tribal leaders, why in the world is your tribe named this? And in the year 1920, there is a, there, the reason that was given is that because our ancestors are the ones that went to pay homage to the great prophet Jesus, is what they said. Think about that for a second. Do I, do I know that that's true or not? I have no idea. But in the year 1920, somebody meets a tribe in Jordan that connects their heritage all the way back to this text. We were the ones that were there. <laughs> Isn't that amazing to think about? Is it true? I don't know. Again, it's not in the text, is it? We don't know. But what the point I'm trying to make with you, thinking about this text and who are the Magi, is that in every one of these circumstances, whether they're Zoroastrian, whether they're Bedouin, whether it's, it's these stories of, of them being kings from India, kings from Persia, kings from Arabia, in every single one of those instances, it means that they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. And the text doesn't say this specifically, but it's inferring this to us. These are outsiders These are people that worship different gods, had different religious practices. Now, I don't want you to get kind of lost in all this history, so let me make this long meandering point, if you haven't already fallen asleep, very clear to you, okay? The light of God has come to those who are outside the covenant with God. The light of God has come to those who are outside the covenant with God. That's what's happening in this text. These are outsiders. And I want to show you how outside they are. They come to Jerusalem. They're following this light. This, this prevenient grace, this, this light has gone before these magi, and they see it. They recognize, oh, something is happening. We have got to follow this light. They're following God. They don't exactly know what all of that means, but they're following, aren't they? And they show up in Jerusalem, and what do they do? They're just bumbling their way through this. They come to Herod, and they say to King Herod, oh, we're here to celebrate, to worship, to bow down to the new king of the Jews. Now, if you were here last week, you know this is a bad idea, right? Herod, the man who killed two sons because he thought they were taking his throne, the man who killed a wife, his favorite wife, because he was afraid she was conspiring against him. And we have these magi show up and say to King Herod, Hey, where's this new king that we hear about? this isn't going to go well. But they're so outside this reality that they don't know it. Why would they know it? Why why wouldn't an outsider who doesn't know all the intrigue of what's going on in Jerusalem or maybe never has heard of King Herod or know who he is really, why would they think to themselves, oh, this star represents a new king for Israel, a new king of the Jews, let's go and celebrate. Why wouldn't they think that Jerusalem would be wouldn't be celebrating right now. They should be, shouldn't they? The new king has arrived, and for all we know, these magi might have come thinking that actually this new king is a descendant of Herod. We don't know what they were thinking exactly, do we? But they show up, ready to celebrate, ready to pay homage to this new king, and the text tells us that Herod is deeply disturbed by this. We know. One, because we might have heard what he's capable of last week, but we know also because Matthew takes us behind closed doors in this text. Through the power of the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows what's happening behind closed doors, but the Magi have no idea. Did you notice that? All of Jerusalem is deeply disturbed with Herod when they hear this news, and he has this powwow where he's trying to figure out what's going on, and then he comes back to the Magi and says to them, hey, Why don't you go find this king of the Jews and then come back? Report to me where this child is so that I too can worship. Herod may be paranoid, cruel, but you know what? He's a brilliant political tactician. He's confronted with something that brings absolute terror to him. He is deeply disturbed. And yet somehow the text is telling us he doesn't reveal that to the Magi. They have no idea. Because he sends them away on a task, and it's not until they get a dream from God, do not return back to Herod, that they change course. In other words, friends, if God doesn't intervene, guess what the Magi were going to do? They were going to go back to Herod. That's how brilliant he is, how tactical he was. He was using the Magi for his own gain. And God had to insert himself into the Magi's life in order to keep them from going back to King Herod. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to disparage these wise ones. I'm not. I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all. I just want you to understand I think the text is telling us how much of outsiders they really are because they have no idea what is going on in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus has arrived. They think it's a celebration and what they come to do is tell Herod and Herod wants death. That's what we know. They don't know everything. But God does, doesn't he? God does. And God reveals the light to the magi, (laughs) the star, and they see it, and they recognize it, and they follow it. And I don't think this is a mistake, and I don't think it's unplanned. I don't think it's just happenstance. I think God knows, and I think God knows the inclination of Herod, don't you? Don't you think that God knew that this was risky? That the Magi might show up bumbling their way into Jerusalem, not going directly to Bethlehem, but going to Jerusalem first, alerting King Herod to something that he doesn't seem to be aware of until they arrive? This is risky. Why? Why take this risk? What's going on here? Surely God knows. And I believe that he does what Herod is capable of. But friends, I keep wrestling with this idea of choice. And I have to wonder that if it isn't part of God's plan here to have the Magi see this grace, this prevenient grace that's going before them. They don't exactly know what the light means. They think it's going to lead them to a Christ child. But do they actually even know what that means? I don't think so because they're outsiders again. But they're willing to follow this grace They're willing to to submit and, and to do the journey, do the hard work of finding out where does this end. And in the midst of it, God has them directed to King Herod. And is it because that God wants to one more time give Herod the option of grace, choice? You don't have to destroy the Christ. You could choose to worship. Now, I... I don't know exactly. I just know that if God is capable of knowing that King Herod was a cruel, paranoid, dangerous person, and this was risky, I also know that God knows if there's potential for salvation to happen as well. And so I come back to this middle space. Is this an opportunity for choice? All I know is that God sends the light to outsiders Knowing that they're very active of following the light, might actually put Christ in danger. Do you get that? That's what the text is telling us. The magi follow the light, go to Jerusalem, Herod doesn't know anything until the magi show up, and that puts Jesus' life in danger. And God does it anyway. He does it anyway. God chooses Gentiles, he chooses outsiders, he chooses worshipers of another faith to come meet Jesus Christ. And not only do they come, they bow down and worship, verse 11 tells us. So, there are so many texts, I think, in Scripture that in that moment are beginning to be realized. I think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Oh, there are so many texts in Scripture that in this moment are beginning to be realized. Outsiders to the faith are given the light, and they follow. They bow, they worship, and they bring gifts. And those gifts might have symbolic significance, but you know what else they do? They provide the very means for this poor family to flee Herod. (laughs) What do you think they use to get to Egypt? To get back from Egypt? They're using the wealth that has been given to them in this moment. So friends, here's what I'm wrestling with. Christ is protected by Gentiles. (laughs) Christ is is provided for by Gentiles. Do you think it's too much to say that Gentiles help save Christ's life? Not not spiritually, of course. That salvation's not necessary. But physically, doesn't the text seem to be telling us this? And here we are, at the very beginning of this gospel. This is such a subversive text. Do you hear it? This isn't how they would have told the story. Nobody would have thought of it this way. You don't bring Gentiles into the beginning of this. Maybe they can be an add-on at the end, but not at the beginning. Guess what? We are at the end as well. Matthew's gospel ends with, Go forth and baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And make disciples of all nations, Oh, it's at the end, but I'm trying to get you to see that it's not just an add-on at the end. It's not an afterthought. It's buried all the way at the beginning of this gospel that God is a God for all. Christ is the Christ for all. It's here. He's calling the outsider. And it's not just that the outsider is receiving light, which they are. They bow down and they worship, but guess what? They bring gifts to this one that is actually bringing salvation to this family. It's saving this family family. Oh, God is doing a subversive thing here. Do you see it? Church, do you see it? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I preached too long. I think, I think this text is so interesting. We're the beneficiaries of this. Do you get it? The, the Magi are us, Gentiles outsiders. Light has come to them so you and I can trust that light can come to us today because of this text. Oh, we're the beneficiaries of this, but I need to wrap this up, so let me just ask this question of you, church. We've benefited from it. The light has dawned in our lives. Do we have the right to withhold that light from others? Aren't there outsiders in our world today? Might this text be challenging us, church, that we have to have eyes wide open, that God's pervenient grace, his light is dawning in all these places, and we're not the ones to control it. We're just the ones to partner with it. It happened in our lives. Whose life might it need to happen to today? Well, there's so much we could wrestle with. But we do need to come to the end of this service. And I think instead of having some nice, neat end to my message, what's really helpful is that we're going to come to the table for communion. I think it's a fitting closing chapter to this message today. Because I think if you want to tap into what the heart of this, this passage is about and God's light is dawning and surprising in surprising and new ways, that you, my friend, are one of the surprising ways that it's dawning because you don't deserve it. I like you a lot, okay? I'm not being mean, but you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. All the good things that we do in our, don't mean that we deserve the light of God dawning in our lives. In many ways, we're outsiders. We're lost in the darkness, stumbling around And then God's grace came to us, didn't it? His light dawned in us, called us to himself. So we're going to come to the table today mindful of that, that in fact every single one of us in here is being asked to come, is invited to come because God's grace isn't just for some. It is for all who will receive it. Will you receive it today? You can receive it in a couple ways, I think. You could receive today's elements as light for you, as grace for you, and as salvation. The light comes and it saves, doesn't it? So today could be the day that you take these elements and you say to God, today I repent. Today I ask for your forgiveness. Today, God, I need your grace to come into my life. I need your light to come. I need to taste it for the first time. Oh, I commit my life to you. Oh, the gift of salvation is being presented to you. Come and receive it. Some of us have tasted that gift, haven't we? But we're not finished, are we? Because you think about the light of God, what does the light of God do for us? It saves us, but it sanctifies us, it purifies us, makes us holy, it makes us like Jesus. So the rest of us in here, if your prayer isn't, oh, save me, God, it is, oh, help me, God, to be more like Christ, purify me this day. I need this grace to be sanctified through and through. I don't know which path is yours today. I just know this. The text is telling us every single one of us in here is invited to take, to eat, to experience grace. That's good news for us, isn't it? We are unique individuals. And the Christian faith doesn't ask us to be uniform. But it does ask for unity of faith. And so before we come to the table, I'd like to remind our, have us remind ourselves of our faith that is uniting us, all of our different experiences and where we come from. It's uniting us together. So let's recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.